You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Midland, Texas. Redeemer Church is a gospel-centered missional family. If you would like to get more information or donate to this ministry, please visit www.redeemermidland.org. This week, we are finishing a three-week series about the cross leading up to Easter. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, it's unbelievably important. If you're going to understand Jesus, and if you're going to understand Christianity, you have to talk about the cross. It, it would be like trying to talk about Michael Jordan and omitting basketball. Like, if you're going to talk about Jesus, you have to talk about the cross. And yet, sometimes it's a difficult conversation because the reality of the cross, like it says some things about us because there's a way in which our sin has what was necessitated the cross. And so a lot of times people, and sadly even Christians, will not talk about the cross because it's heavy, it's difficult, and yet what a disservice to Jesus would it be for Him to walk through what He did on the cross and for us to not talk about the implications. So before we celebrate Easter, it's crucial for us to understand the cross and what took place on the cross. What Jesus was able to accomplish on the cross has been changing human history for 2,000 years. Uh, what he accomplished on the cross, uh, we, we will never, I believe, truly plumb the depths of that. Uh, but really what he did was, it was the answer to the world's problems, um, to every human's problems, to every culture's problems. Uh, and we're looking at the last two weeks and this week, uh, especially fear, guilt, and shame. That what Jesus did on the cross very specifically answers all of our biggest problems uh, of fear, guilt, and shame. So two weeks ago, we looked at how Jesus is the, uh, the antidote for fear. Or last week, how Jesus fixes our guilt and declares us innocent. And today, we'll be looking at um, sin. E- every human being, every person has felt the effects of all three of these. Um, yet, most of us, both individuals and cultures, feel one of them more than the other two. And uh, sociologists that are not Christians and Christian missiologists agree that one of these three problems, fear, guilt, and shame, is so big normally for a person or a culture that it comes to uh, really dominate, dominate the landscape for them. And sociologists have looked at just humanity and realize that entire cultures are built around uh, fear. And if fear is the problem, then power is the answer. That's what they feel most, although they're affected by all three. And they'll look at some cultures and say that they are uh, guilt-based cultures, that that's the number one thing that that people feel and they're looking for an answer for. Uh, And then also there's some that are uh, shame and honor cultures that feel uh, shame more than the other three. And so we've been walking through just how specifically and precisely the cross deals with all three of those things. And I think that um, this message today is going to be, I hope, a a profound message. I think it's incredibly timely, and I think it truly meets us in a place that maybe we didn't know that we we are. But I'll make the case in a few moments that I believe there's been a massive shift in our culture uh, where for 250 years we've been a guilt-based culture, and the gospel has truly uh, hit a felt need when we have been told that the cross makes us innocent. Uh, But I think the main thing that most Americans are dealing with is shame. And so we have to understand how the cross confronts us in our shame. Uh, Fear. 
if, if fear is our biggest problem, then normally it has to do, uh, the, the answer is power. So if we're afraid of something, if we're afraid of death, if we're afraid of spirits or demons, um, then we will go looking for something that is more powerful um, than our fears, and the cross shows us that we're actually looking for Jesus, that Jesus is the answer if fear is the problem. He is bigger and stronger uh, than all of our fears. Uh, If the problem is guilt, then we will go look for a way out of the guilt. We'll look for a way to be or to feel innocent, and if that's our biggest problem, Jesus is our only answer. He's the only one that can actually deal with, uh, w- with our guilt problem. And then today, I want to show you uh, just how, how incredible and strategic the cross is to deal with human shame. So Genesis chapter 3, we have begun here uh, every time the last three weeks, and we will again this morning. Genesis chapter 3, verses 6, 7, and 21. It's here on the screen. If you want to follow along, it says this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, this was the tree that God warned them. He said, you can have all these things. You can enjoy all these things. You can do all these things. Just this one thing, don't eat of the tree. So the one thing that God told them not to do is what they ended up doing. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that was delight to the eyes and that the tree was, to des- was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. And if you skip down to verse 21, the the loincloth was their attempt to hide their nakedness, to cover their shame. It was a very insufficient covering that they had come up with. And if you look forward a few verses to 21, you find out God's plan for covering shame. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. What is shame? Uh, Shame is very different than guilt and fear, although sometimes it's hard to really understand the difference between shame and guilt. Uh, Fear is is normally the fear of something out there, fear of cancer, fear of uh, death, fear of uh, spiritual war. It's, it's, It's fear of something out there that's coming at us. And guilt, it's a problem with something back there, like something in our past, something that we have done, something that we haven't done. Uh, Shame is something that is in here. It has to do with our person, our identity, the way we view ourselves, Uh, and it it, it behaves very differently than guilt, although uh, normally guilt, uh, when guilt, something that is felt internal, is exposed publicly, that's normally when we feel shame. When we are exposed, that's truly at the heart of shame. It's something that's being exposed or being uh, naked, you could say, um, to the world. Um, So if guilt has something to do with us doing something wrong and violating a law or violating our conscience, uh, shame is that being exposed in public. Uh, Could you imagine a scenario where you were guilty of a, a sin, you knew this, and you'd violated the law, you'd violated your conscience, and you internally felt guilt. But then you find out that there was a videotape of the sin, whatever it might be, and somebody had found it and was about to put it out for the world to see what you had done. That ensuing feeling is shame. 
What, what you have done is about to be exposed to the world. If you're on a stand, perhaps, uh, in a courtroom, uh, and maybe you've committed a crime and you're feeling guilt, but the moment the gavel falls and they uh, tell the whole world that you're, in fact, guilty, that's when the feeling shifts from guilt to shame. This is why in Mark chapter 1, Joseph, who was a a good and godly man, said that he was not willing to shame Mary because he had wrongfully thought that she had um, had relations with someone else because she was pregnant and he knew he was not the father. And so he assumed there was a sin and he did not want that to go public and to shame her. So he decided that he would uh, divorce her quietly. Um, That was Joseph. He thought maybe the feelings of guilt were enough that he didn't need to add on a public exposure of that. There's a link between naked and shame. And just so you know, fair warning, the word naked is going to come up a few times, uh, and it came up uh, last week, and uh, one seven-year-old giggled a little bit. Um, I don't know if he's related to me, but he does have my last name and and live in my house. Uh, And as he giggled, a grown man in the back giggled, uh, not at the word naked, or if you're from Amarillo, naked, but at the seven-year-old, and then a girl that was sitting behind him was like, you're so childish. So... Let's just all get this out of the way. I'll say naked. Everybody giggle a little bit. bit. Naked? Giggle a little bit. Okay, we'll get that out of our way. And this is important because there is a very tight link. You see it in Genesis 3 between naked and shame. This is why if, if you're in the shower and somebody barges in you, immediately your reaction is to cover yourself. Or I was in uh, Nicaragua years ago preaching, and we were in canoes going up the Coco River and came around the bend of a river, and there was some women uh, doing, some la- doing their own laundry and uh, were uh, exposed, and we came around the corner, and they just did this. It's like one way or the other, just either cover yourself or don't let people know who you are. They're both highly effective. There's a, there's a link between nakedness and shame. So when Adam and Eve realized they were guilty and now exposed before God, they, they for the first time, realized they were naked and attempted to cover their shame by sewing fig leaves together and making a loincloth, which is a, a very insufficient way to cover nakedness. But they, it was their attempt because they felt the shame. They didn't like it, and so they were attempting to remedy it themselves and to cover it themselves, but God looked down and he's like, God, that is such an insufficient covering, and the next thing that you have is the first death. The fig leaves weren't enough, so it says that God clothed them with animal skins. So God is not just going to make them a loincloth, but fully clothe them, but it's going to require something to die, and that's a very, very strong a foreshadowing of Jesus, that from the very beginning, God's plan was to cover human shame in a much more full fashion, but it was going to require the death of something. The reason that I want to spend a bit of time talking about what, what shame produces in us, and very specifically how the cross of Christ deals with shame is because I truly believe there's been a shift, and this is perhaps, although these are like difficult waters to wade in, uh, we're willing to wade in them because I think this is where a lot of people are drowning, Um, maybe drowning in shame and the effects of shame and affecting you perhaps more than you imagine. We desperately need to know why the cross was designed the way it was to deal with human shame. So what shame produces? Uh, A couple things. Number one, it, it normally produces loneliness 
and isolation. Uh, because shame kind of whispers to us that we don't have value, and so we've got to kind of pull away from others, and uh, we've got to uh, shy away from relationships. Uh, how many of y'all remember the story of the woman at the well? Um, she had uh, done some things in her life. She had been divorced uh, five different times and was shacking up with, was living with a man that was not her husband, was cohabitating, which in their culture was very frowned upon. It was uh, a violation of uh, God's design and God's commands. And she was so guilty that she was shamed by her by her city and her village and perhaps family, and, and, and that caused her to draw away from people so that you find her at the well in the middle of the day. Why? Because nobody else was there. Nobody else would tote a heavy water jar in the heat of the day to the water. She was doing that so that she wouldn't be shamed, so that she wouldn't feel the shame and the exposure of her sins. I, you know, I think that probably the only thing heavier for her that day than that large jug of water was the shame that she was carrying, and it had it caused her to isolate, and no doubt she was living a, a very lonely, very isolated life. But then she meets Jesus, and Jesus like confronts her in that, says, I know your past, and talks through it, deals with it, forgives it, and completely changes her. Where she, where, When Jesus deals with her shame, she turns around, runs back into the village that she had receded from, engages with people, tells them uh, about Jesus, and is like kind of reintegrated into relationships because Jesus had met her in her shame and dealt with it. Uh, normally, shame causes loneliness and isolation. Number two, Shame normally causes feelings of inadequacy, failure, and oftentimes depression. This feeling where you feel this internal thing, it's not something out there, it's not something back there, it's something in here, and that causes us to feel um, like we are not good enough. Uh, perhaps uh, maybe you've ever been let go of a job or been broken up with uh, by a boyfriend or a girlfriend, uh, and it's not something that you've done, it's a sin that has caused it, but perhaps you just feel like you just weren't enough. And so you have to try to prove yourself at the next job because you're carrying this uh, kind of sense that you just don't add up, you're just not enough, you're just not uh, quite good enough. It produces feelings of inadequacy, failure, and depression often. Number three, shame often breeds insecurity and identity crisis or confusion about who we are. And this is why I think this is important because most Americans, in, in my estimation, are not walking around with an immense feeling of guilt, although we're guilty before God, we don't feel it maybe, walking around with an immense level of insecurity and identity crisis. I think that shame is what is underlying the gender confusion in our world. I think there's so much confusion and identity crisis and insecurity about, about who God has, has made us to be that instead of letting Jesus deal with the shame, we've got such deep insecurities and identity crisis that we're trying to, to cover the shame with fig leaves here and there. Number four uh, often feels, uh, brings with it a feeling of unworthiness uh, or being unlovable. I didn't know this, but there's actually people out there that are shame researchers, and one of them is Dr. Brown, and uh, after reading a fair bit of his stuff this week, uh, I, I don't think, I don't, I don't know, but I don't think he's a Christian, um, but he seems to be coming to the very same conclusions that the Bible does um, just by looking at humans, by looking at our interaction with things, and he says this. He says, based on my research 
and the research of other shame researchers, I believe there's a profound difference between shame and guilt. I believe that guilt is holding something that we've done or failed to do up against our values, and we have a feeling of psychological discomfort. But he says, I define shame as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced, we've done, or we've failed to do that makes us unworthy of connection. So why does it matter that Jesus has come to deal with shame? Because if any of that resonated with you, Jesus is your man. If any of the shame resonates with you, then the only answer to having shame removed and honor restored is what Jesus has done on the cross. So I would make the case for 250 years since the inception of our country, we have been a guilt-based society that the biggest problem we feel is guilt. And so if you look at the history uh, of, of, of re- spiritual renewals and um, great awakenings and revivals, a lot of it has been preaching that hit that nerve. It's like, listen, you might be walking around with a guilt. Praise God. Jesus has dealt with our guilt so that we can be innocent. I think such massive shifts have happened in the last 20 or 30 years that the main felt need, felt problem of most Americans has changed. And so two things, two reasons that's important. Number one, because of just like as you intake things uh, and, and you feel things, if you feel the effects of shame, then the answer is Jesus. So I want you to know, like if, if any of this resonates with you, Jesus has come to meet you in that and to change you. But also, I think this is important because not just of how we intake the gospel, but how we share the gospel. I, I truly believe, and I'm going to do my best to show you why in a few moments, that if we're going to be effective in these next 20 or 30 years of seeing big revival and thousands of people coming to Christ and spiritual renewal, we have to show them not only is Jesus the answer to your fear, but he, and He is, not only is He the answer to your guilt, and He is, but He is actually the answer to insecurity, confusion, identity crisis, and shame. A couple reasons why I think this is such a massive shift. Number one, because our culture over the last 20 or 30 years have be, has, has become more of a relativistic culture where truth used to be just an absolute thing that God says it's true, so it's good for everyone all time. Our culture now says, eh, that's not true. Truth is relative. You come up with your truth, I come up with mine. And uh, you get to define what's true for you, I get to define what's true for me. And if you do away with moral absolutes, then you do away with the feeling of guilt. Right? You don't, don't do away with guilt. We're still guilty. We just think that we're not. It's like if somebody convinces you, which is... It's happened in our house a few times, that gravity is not real. Does that mean that gravity is not real? No. Gravity doesn't care what you think about it. What it does mean is you're going to change your life and you're going to live according to a lie and it's going to catch you at some point. Like, so our world is saying, listen, no, God doesn't get to define what's true. You get to define what's true. That doesn't change the fact that we're guilty before God, but we don't feel it quite as much. I think that shift has caused a a massive tectonic shift in our culture. Second thing, um, social media. Uh, especially the last 15 years, um, social media uh, has done a lot to change the, the 
the, the makeup of our culture. And we've talked about this so much over the years, but um, the more engaged you are in any type of social media, no, normally that, that elevates the, the feelings of shame and the effects of shame. I don't know that um, social media causes shame, but I do think it exposes shame and insecurity, and it is no doubt impotent to actually help deal with it. So the more social media has taken over our lives, uh, it's like guilt and fear aren't on the rise, but the effects of shame um, surely are. Number three, uh, divorce. The last 30 years, the uh, just escalated rate of divorce, which was what the woman at the well was dealing with. Um, There's a lot of different numbers and studies out there, but the last few decades, um, most would say that divorce has increased uh, roughly 600%. And everything else aside, like divorce, it, it hurts. And a lot of people will walk away from divorce and they will feel shame like they just weren't enough. It leaves some major wounds in people. And if we have so many people that have dealt with this, I think there's a low-grade shame that potentially comes with us that we've turned that in on ourselves. Uh, abuse. Again, these are difficult waters, but I think some are drowning, so we need to talk about it. One in four kids right now uh, have been abused, and a strange phenomenon happens when somebody is abused. They normally take on an element of shame, and they could be absolutely, totally innocent and have been sinned against, and yet there's something illogical yet very real that takes place where they feel like, this must be because there's something wrong with me. And just like if 25% of the kids walking around our country are dealing with this, then no doubt it has changed um, the makeup of our culture. Uh, Broken families, absent parents, especially absent dads, whether that's a dad that just physically left uh, or oftentimes a dad that is physically present but has emotionally left, he's unengaged. Uh, There's something unique by God's design that fathers were designed, and and mothers too, fathers in a unique way, I think, to, to, to speak into the lives of their sons and their daughters that when that is removed, it produces some massive uh, elements of shame. A lot of people carry around this idea that, gosh, dad left, mom left, that must be something to do with me. And if the, I mean, you know the numbers of what's happened to the family uh, unit the last many decades. I would make the case that that has produced uh, a lot of shame that we carry around um, with us. Uh, And the number six, pornography. Uh, I don't have to share with you the stats, but I will. Uh, 82% of folks um, uh, that were polled uh, in a poll I read just recently uh, self-reported that they were regular viewers. And what both the Bible and Christians and non-Christian psychologists will say is that pornography produces shame, and shame feeds pornography, and it's this cycle where if you have 82% of the population that is dealing with something, it is producing a shame that affects our lives. Those six things together, I think we have had a massive shift in our culture, and Jesus is very precisely the answer. So the cross... The cross, we've talked about it for two weeks now, was a very, very specific way to die. Uh, Jesus could have given his life in a lot less painful ways, and no doubt he could have given his life in a lot less shameful ways. 
The cross was designed by the Persians. It was perfected by the Romans. The purpose was to do two things, maximize pain, maximize shame. And it was, it was reserved for the worst of the worst of the worst criminals. The worst of the worst of the worst criminals were to be stripped down naked, absolutely exposed, bearing their sins on the cross. Oftentimes, it would, over their head would be the sin that they were guilty of and just be absolutely completely exposed and hung up in public in front of their mother and their father and their siblings and their friends and their community to be absolutely publicly shamed while they were crucified, a slow, torturous excruciating, that's what the word means from the cross, excruciating pain. And yet, here's the story of Jesus. He lived his life, he was absent of sin. He never committed a sin in word, in thought, in action, in deed, and yet he knew he was going to be arrested and crucified. And he, he continued marching forward. And then one night, you know the story, he would be arrested. There would be an illegal trial where um, they would condemn him not to death, but they would condemn him to death by crucifixion. Remember the story, crucify him, crucify him. That's what they shouted out. And then they proceeded to strip Jesus of all of his clothes, completely exposed. John Chapter 19 explains a little bit about this. Matthew 27 says the same, same thing. He was stripped naked and they put uh, a crown of thorns to mock him and a purple robe to mock him as the king of kings. And then in John 19, it's here on the screen, it says, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments, which he was not wearing, and they divided them into four parts, each part for each, for each soldier, and also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but let's cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill the Scripture which says, and then it quotes from the book of Psalms, chapter 22, which was written a thousand years before by King David. Three hundred years before crucifixion was invented, and it says this, is, this was the plan all along. And it quotes Psalm 22, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. The plan all along was for Jesus to be absolutely and utterly shamed, and that involved him bearing our sins and being fully exposed naked on a cross. Nakedness is important in the Bible. It, 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 it reveals a lot. So there's, there's Jesus, had done nothing wrong. Even the pilot, pilot the judge presiding over this uh, court case, could not find any fault in him. Yet he, it, could you imagine, like, could you imagine being guilty of a sin, being stripped down in public, marched down to downtown, put up on a cross, and all of the town and a live feed uh, streaming this, uh, just you naked on a cross, the amount of shame that you would, you would feel. And Psalm 22 says, like, that was the plan all along, not just for Jesus to give his life, but for Jesus to be shamed and to endure shame. Uh, Jesus tells a story. We call it the prodigal son, and this is um, my favorite parable. I've preached it many times here, but it's just, it's really difficult to talk about shame and not talk about the, the, the story of the prodigal son. So this is a parable 
meaning this is not a real event that happened. This is something that Jesus uh, created, a story that every single detail in the story was created, and so therefore it has purpose. Nothing just happens on accident. If they say in a parable that so-and-so had a green shirt, then that has a, a, a purpose because it didn't really happen. So Jesus creates the story, and the purpose of the story is not to deal with people that have fear, and it's not to deal with people that feel guilt. It's to deal with people that have done something that has brought shame. And so he creates the story, and you know the story probably as well as I do, that there's a father, he says, that had two sons. And then he proceeds to talk about the life of one of the sons, the youngest son. And and what Jesus uses to describe him was shameful. He was a shameful son, and he came and, and he shamed his father. And he said, Father, listen, you're as good as dead to me. I don't like you. I don't want to be in your house. I don't want to live with you anymore. I want my stuff. I want my inheritance. I want my money now. Jesus d- does that so that we feel, oh, what a shameful thing to say to your father. You're supposed to honor your father and mother. And this son had done the opposite. And then he describes the life of this boy, and it's shameful. Jesus says he goes out and he uh, lives his life, squanders his money, basically in Vegas with prostitutes. That is a shameful thing for a, a Jewish boy to do after he has shamed his father. And then he describes, Jesus describes um, the company um, that this young man kept, and it was shameful. It was, his company was pigs. And if you know Jews, you know, like, bacon, ham, off limits, like, because pigs are the most unclean and the most shameful company you could keep would be pigs. And yet that's what Jesus decides. He's, tr- he's, dr- he's trying to really drive home this point that this kid was shameful. Even his diet, he talks about his diet, that he was eating the slop from the pigs that there was left over, which normally there's not much leftovers when pigs eat and what is left. I grew up on a farm and we had pigs, and I'll tell you this, what's left is not good. And Jesus paints this story, like even the kid's diet was shameful. What, what, what Jesus is trying to do is for you to feel that this son is dealing with shame probably driving him to isolation, probably um, taking it in at some point when he looks up and realizes who he is and what he's done. Uh, He is filled with shame, and the last thing that he wants is for that to be exposed. But it had gotten so bad, and and, and the Bible says, Jesus says, when he came to himself, which, which at some level or another, we all know what that feels like. Like when you look up and you're like, I have no idea how I got here. I have no idea how I did this. It didn't start this way, but it started with small things here and there, and now I just, you kind of look up, you're like, oh, what in the world? So it says, when he, when he came to himself, he, he prepared himself to go back and to see his father, and Jesus has prepped the whole audience to hear this and to think, finally, this kid is going to get what he deserves, and the son himself expects to get what he deserves. So he's prepared this long speech. He's going to go home and just tell his father, hey, treat me like one of your servants. I just don't deserve much. And, and, I, and the, the way that Jesus creates the story, that the story is really about the father. The, the son is a main character, but the story is about the father who represents God. And so the story represents how God deals with someone who has shame. Luke 15, it's here on the screen. Verse 20, it says, but while he was still a long way off, you've heard this many times, and so the, son, the, the father's on a rocking chair on the front porch, and he looks a mile down the farm road, and he sees the son while he's a long way off. 
his father saw him, and he felt compassion. And he ran, which was a dishonorable thing for a father to do. You don't run in public. Other people, other servants run to you. You don't run if you're a Jewish man. He ran, and he embraced him, and he kissed him. And the son said to the father, and he began to replay the spiel that he had prepped uh, all the way home. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy. You, you feel the shame. I'm, not, I'm just not worthy to be called your son. I don't belong in the family. I'm not worthy of your love. I'm not worthy of this place. I'm not worthy of a relationship. I have shame. I don't belong. But the father said to his servants, he just, he doesn't even acknowledge the son. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Be quiet. Be quiet, son. Uh, quickly, go get the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Jesus paints the picture of this, these three very unearned, unearned gifts. A robe that the son didn't deserve. A ring that the son didn't deserve. Shoes that the son didn't deserve. And Jesus paints this picture that this father is just completely restoring the honor and removing the shame of this son. This this is what he's communicating, what what, what the father's communicating in the storm, what Jesus is communicating to us is that when we're dealing with shame, how, how, how God meets us is with a robe and a ring and sandal saying, no, you do belong here. I have made you belong here. You do matter. You do mean something. You, 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 I'm, I'm giving you back your honor. You are loved. You are part of the family. You do have a place at the dinner table. Now, I have always wondered, because I've, I've, I bet I've preached this 15 times over the years in various places, and I have always wondered if at this moment in the story, Jesus didn't choke up. Because Jesus, as he's sharing this story, which for us, like, what a, what a beautiful story of God removing shame. Like, Jesus knew in just a few months what he would have to endure to make this story true. Like, as he was getting to the end of the story, what if he was, like, had just witnessed the week before someone being crucified, pinned up naked while everybody walked through and mocked them and thought, what a horrible, horrible person, fully exposed, fully shameful. Like Jesus, no doubt, was thinking about what he would have to do so that the story of the prodigal son is true, meaning this, that Jesus would have to be utterly shamed so that we might be treated as the prodigal son. Jesus deals with shame. The whole cross was designed for Jesus to bear our shame and restore our honor, which brings us to the text for today. And I'm really just going to let this have the final say, which many of us have read this text in Hebrews chapter 12 uh, many times, but I want you to see it from maybe perhaps a new light. Therefore, he had just talked in, in, in Hebrews chapter 11, we call it the hall of faith, just all these heroes of the faith that had done incredible things, had made huge sacrifices for Christ, had endured a lot for Jesus, were faithful to the end. There's like this uh, image, like they're surrounding us in this huge um, theater and we're on the track running our race and there's thousands of faithful witnesses. Um, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight 
I, th- I think part of that is referring to shame and the, thing, the, the weight that we carry with shame and sin, which, so, which clings so closely, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And then it tells us how to do that, looking to Jesus, the founder, some of your verses say the author, looking unto Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And what that means is Jesus hated the shame, yet he endured the shame on the cross on our behalf. It's like fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So what's the big idea? What's the moral of the story? Is that the cross represents that Jesus was shamed so that he can restore our honor. Jesus he is what God was referring to in Genesis 3.27. He was the one that would actually have to die that would once and for all be the full clothing to cover the shame of humanity. And so I hear this often when people hear the gospel, they know about Jesus, they know about forgiveness and grace and faith, and yet kind of feel some shame about some things that they have done and some, uh, perhaps some sins and struggles and problems that they currently have. Uh, and I hear this often, well, I just need to fix a couple things and then I'll show up. I just need to get a handle on a few sins and I'll come to church. I just need to control a few things and, and remove a, a little bit of shame before I come to Jesus. And what that is, it's, it's the loincloth. It's the, the, the man's attempt to try to cover, and like, it, it's just, it's insufficient. And so, like, if, if, if God is the one who clothes and covers shame, then we don't need to make the, the loincloth, so to speak. Like, you don't, have, you don't have to fix anything before you come to Jesus. You don't, you, like, that's what saviors do. It's like the oncologist, like, well, I got to deal with this cancer, and then I'll show up to the oncologist. That's not how it works. Like, I've got to deal with my shame, and then I'll show up to the Savior. That's what He does. So I want to encourage you to remove all that. Like, don't, don't waste time trying to sew together fig leaves. Come to Christ who actually deals with shame. He has a closet full of robes. Right? He's got a jewelry case full of rings. He's got a box full of shoes. Like, like He has what He has purchased for you so that when you come to Jesus in your shame, you are treated as if Jesus Christ himself was coming home. Jesus was shamed so that we could have our honor restored. Bow your head, close your eyes, let's pray. Father, we love you, we need you. Father, I truly believe this is a message that our church, our city, and our country needs to hear. Uh, and Spirit, I, I, I pray and I invite you, would you stir up in our hearts, not just our need, God, not, not just our shame, no doubt that is stirred up plenty in our hearts, but I pray that you would uh, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, who endured the shame of the cross so that you might restore our honor. God, I pray that you would convince some people that if they would just simply turn, that you will meet them while they are a far way off, a long way off, and that you have a row prepared for them, that you'd, uh, you want them in the family. They belong. You have uh, purchased them a place in your, in, your, in your family, in your will, at the table, that they're not slaves, that they're truly sons, they're daughters. 
Father, as we reflect on the cross, I pray that you might be magnified and glorified and what you were able to accomplish on the cross should produce worshipers for all of eternity. We thank you. We praise you. We need you. And I pray this in your powerful living name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Church. If you want to connect with us at Redeemer, we would love for you to visit us at a service in person or visit us online at www.redeemermidland.org.